If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Genesis chapter nine. Genesis chapter nine. If you're brand new to church, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Really easy to find. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so there's not too much flipping around necessary. Of course, you can always uh, download an app and have that smartphone with you wherever you might be. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and since today is wrapping up the beginning of the Bible, I thought I would do kind of a quick review as to what's taking place here. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field, God created all of them. Then at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter to God creates humanity and he says be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth they're living in paradise but that paradise doesn't last long by the time we hit Genesis chapter 3 sin enters the world and it's a sin many of us have committed as well God the father says to Adam and Eve I don't want you to eat from this one particular tree and how many of us ran into mom's cookie jar or ran into the pantry and stole food we weren't supposed to by the time we hit Genesis 4 Adam and Eve's kids have taken that one little sin and blew it up, and their son, Cain, kills their other son, Abel. To quote the great movie, Anchorman, that escalated quickly. (laughs) In Genesis chapter five, we get the genealogy of how do we get from Adam to Noah. In Genesis chapter six, we recognize things are not going well. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, all enter the ark with one pair of every kind of animal. The God sends the flood that covers the whole earth, and we read this after the flood resides. God says, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In Genesis chapter 10, we then get another genealogy from Noah all the way to Abraham. But tucked in there in chapter 11, we get this great story, the Tower of Babel. I mentioned earlier that I would give a lot of context. In fact, if you enjoy taking notes, the whole first part of the outline is understanding the context of what takes place here. And I hope you love it. If you were here three weeks ago, I talked genealogy stuff. I'm gonna do some genealogy stuff again. And if you're sitting there going, this guy is gonna talk about genealogy on one of the biggest Sundays of the year, yes, and you're gonna love it, all right? We're gonna have some fun here. Okay, so the first man is Adam. He has three sons. He has Seth, Abel, and Cain. And what we begin to see here is that Cain is evil. Right away in chapter four, we're introduced to his sons, and Cain immediately kills his brother. We also have Abel, and he's just kind of neutral. He he loves God, but we don't hear much about him because he passes away so quickly. And then we have his son, Seth. So Cain has, the, um, through the line of Cain, we have these evil men, and it uh, culminates in the seventh generation. There's this man named Lamech, and he is the embodiment of evil. He starts killing people who look at him the wrong way. He's the first man to bring in polygamy and says, I don't want just one wife, I want many wives. And he begins to do horrible and terrible things. But then you have the other son, Seth, and he's the classic good son. And through him, we also have the descendants of Adam. And the seventh, son, um, the seventh descendant of Adam through Seth ends up in this man named Enoch. Enoch is one of only two men in all of Scripture who never die. 
God looks at him and says, this is a man who is holy and brings him up to heaven. Enoch's sons continue and we have Methuselah, the oldest man to live. We have um, a different son who lives 777 years, kind of saying the embodiment of perfection and goodness. Then we have the son of Noah. Something interesting happens here. There's a symmetry that takes place. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And remember this line, Ham was the father of Canaan. We're gonna read that again soon. These three were the sons of Noah and from these people, or the whole earth were dispersed. So you have Adam with three sons, and now we have Noah with three sons. We have Ham, and Ham is evil. We have Japheth, and Japheth is fairly neutral. His kids end up being some hippies on the coastland somewhere. And then we have his son uh, Shem, who is good. And through the line of Shem, we have the man Abraham. We're going to pick up Genesis next summer. And so we get this idea that something is happening. And so you can see there's the good sons, there's the neutral sons, and then there's perhaps an evil son. We go, what is going on here? This is Genesis chapter 9. If you follow along, um, it should be in your, uh, I always preach from the ESV. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, we can all be mature for a moment and go, okay, well, Ham probably shouldn't have done that. He walked into the tent, he saw his dad naked, and rather than doing something about it, he went outside to his two brothers and he said, guys, dad is drunk and naked. Isn't that funny? And his two brothers are like, no, that's not funny we got to take a blanket in and go cover them up. But let's be honest, how many of us, I'm not looking for a show of hands, <laughs> have seen something embarrassing and thought to ourselves, i got to tell somebody, that's kind of funny. Maybe we're in a restaurant and you watch somebody try to parallel park for 10 minutes and you're like, dude doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe you've seen someone with toilet paper on their shoe and you're like, I'm not going to mention it, it's just something that I'm going to enjoy. When I was in college, about a dozen of us went and we said, we're going to create this big bonfire. It is going to be a ton of fun. And so we loaded up our cars with wood. We loaded up our cars with kindling. And me and a couple of my um, friends grabbed about two gallons of gasoline. And we thought, this bonfire is going to be great. My roommate said, I'm going to start the fire. And so he grabs the gas and he just starts pouring it on all this wood. And he can't get the fire started. And because we love him, we started singing, Nick couldn't start the fire. It should be burning, but Nick's still learning. Nick couldn't start the fire. And you do this because you love them. But that's not the case here. Um, Noah gets up and he finds out what his son has done, and he is angry. And he ends up cursing his son, Ham, and he says, Cursed be your son, Canaan. And I am angry at you and horrible things are going to happen. And you might think, well, you know, he shouldn't have done what he did. He shouldn't have embarrassed his dad. But why is it such a big deal? Maybe there's something else going on. Saw the nakedness of your father is a euphemism for having sex with your father's wife. We read this in Leviticus 18, verse 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. 
Now, the commentators are actually split as to whether or not this happened. Some of them will say, well, in the context of what's taking place, they didn't actually do this because we read later that the two brothers took a blanket in and covered up their father's nakedness. Other commentators are saying, no, this is exactly what happened, and that's why Noah is so angry. How dare my son go in and sleep with my wife, and that when we read that the brothers came in carrying a blanket, it wasn't Noah they were covering, it was actually their naked mother. Some commentators even said, we think that's why Noah got so mad at Canaan. That Canaan isn't actually uh, Ham's son through his wife, but through his mom. Back to the genealogy, watch this. You can find this in 10 verse six if you're curious. Ham has four sons. So now it's a little bit different. It's not the three and three, but you'll see something that takes place here. You've probably heard of Egypt and Canaan. Egypt enslaves Israel for 400 years. Canaan is the arch nemesis of Israel. Put invented golf, and people have been cursing for thousands of years. Joel says I had to apologize for that joke. But you guys are all laughing, so Joel, I don't think I do. <laughs> and Cush is the father of Nimrod. Now, if you grew up in church, you might be thinking, well, obviously the bad kid is going to be Egypt or Canaan, and we're going to follow that line a little bit. But that's not what happens. The son who we're going to look at today is actually Nimrod. And we read this in Genesis chapter 10, 10 to 11. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Nimrod wasn't just a king over a little city-state. If you look closely, Babel is actually the beginning of Babylon. Nimrod was the king over Babylon and Assyria. Remove Egypt for a little bit. These are the first two world superpowers this world has ever known. For those of you who are familiar with Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, this isn't the origin story of multiple languages. I want to say that again. This is not the origin story of multiple languages. We actually read in 10 verse 5, from the coastlands, people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So Genesis chapter 10 is this big picture of Noah's descendants. So Noah comes off the ark with his three sons, his daughters-in-law, um, and they are the only humanity left on earth. And so through his three kids, we get the descendants. So what we want to see is that Noah's descendants begin to scatter all over the earth. And Genesis chapter 11 zeroes in specifically on the story of Nimrod and the creation of the worst city in the history of the world, Babylon. It's a story about the arrogance of humanity trying to make a name for themselves instead of depending on God and keeping him at the center. If you have your Bibles with you, this is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. And if you like taking notes, I'm calling it the arrogance of humanity. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now I know I just spent a couple of minutes talking about context, but there's something else happening here as well that I think is really important to see. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 11, we see that they went east 
And this is important because the theme of going east throughout the scripture, certainly the Old Testament, is that you're moving away from God. And you might think, well, where do we get that? In Genesis chapter three, verse 24, we read that after God sent them out of the um, Garden of Eden, he sent them east. In Genesis chapter four, after Cain kills his brother Abel, God sends him east. In Genesis chapter 12, we're gonna be introduced to Abraham. We're gonna pick that up next June or July. And in Genesis chapter 13, he has so many flocks and so many herds that him and his nephew Lot stand in front of this beautiful land and Abraham says to Lot, where do you wanna go? Lot says, I wanna go east. And so we might be looking at the, if you have an ESV in front of you and says, well, it migrated from the east. For some reason, the ESV has translated it that way. Every other translation I looked at, and I looked at about a half dozen, says they migrated to the east. Another comment that you might find interesting. Nobody knows where the Garden of Eden is located, okay? Nobody knows where the Garden of Eden is located, but because we have the rivers mentioned in Genesis chapter two, we have an idea where in the Middle East it might be, if you wanna take a wild guess, one of those places is thought to be in Shinar, in South Mesopotamia, that the town of Babel, the city of Babel, is built upon the Garden of Eden. Now there's something that's taking place here. Sorry, I think I lost my spot a little bit. For the astute listener, if you're wondering, how can Adam and Eve move east all the time? And then um, Cain goes east, and then everybody moves east, and then suddenly you're back west again. Th this is beautiful of what takes place. When God sends the flood, the ark gets lifted up, and God actually brings them west. He brings them closer to himself. And then when they come out of the ark, they start heading east again because they think to themselves, we don't need God. We don't need what God has given us. And to begin to see the arrogance of humanity, we're heading east because we don't need God. We make our own resources because we don't need the resources God has given us. We're gonna build this great city because we don't wanna just do gardening stuff anymore, God. And as if that isn't enough, the city Babylon, the name means gateway to the gods. We're going to build a tower to the gods and we're not gonna wait for them to come to us. Now, in studying this passage, a variety of different authors, I quickly recognize there's this tension surrounding the city. Take another look at verses three and four, and you'll see what I mean. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Some biblical scholars are quick to point out a couple verses, both Genesis 1, 28 and 9, verse 1, where we have this, I'm sorry, um, whoever's on PowerPoint, I think I've messed up a little bit. I don't know. There we go. Um, where we see that God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. And God bless no one said the same thing, to fill the whole earth. So if... This is the big idea that God is saying them to fill the whole earth. Well, then, of course, God is mad that he builds a city, right? They shouldn't be doing that. They should be continuing to spread out. Before I came to Ellerslie, I was at a small town in uh, Alberta Beach. It's about 45 minutes west of the city. And when I told them that I was leaving um, country rural pastoring to go to the city, a few of them came to me and said, the city is evil. Why would you want to do that? 
And there's something going on here where the city is not the problem. The city is not what's wrong. What's happening here is God is spreading them throughout, and of course they're gonna start building cities to some degree. I recognize this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's a really important one. Where do you think drug and alcohol abuse is, is worse, in the city or in the country? It's the country overwhelmingly so, by about 50% more. If you're an artist or a musician, where do you go to make a name for yourself? Go to the city. If you're poor, where do you go to receive all the social services? It's the city. If you're struggling with your sexuality and everybody in town thinks you're a little bit weird, where do you go? To the city, so you can meet more like-minded people. If you want to start a large business or improve technology, you go to the city. If you want to have more ideas and, and get more understanding and meet more different types of people, you go to the city. My wife and I and our family, we were vacationing this past uh, summer and we went to a, a provincial park out near White Court and we got rained out. And we have this tiny little trailer and so eventually we said, you know, we can't be stuck in this trailer the whole time and so we went into White Court and we went to Walmart, all white people. We went to Tim Hortons, white people. We went to the rec center, white people. I don't know if there was anybody who wasn't white who lives in white court. Look around you. We have well over a hundred Nigerians who call Ellerslie home. We have a Chinese church within our church. The God is bringing the nations to Canada. And God is saying, this is what I want the city to look like. The ministry of Jesus culminates in a city. The Holy Spirit comes down at a city. The Apostle Paul ministers two cities. The beginning of Genesis starts in a garden. Revelation ends in a city. Now maybe you're looking at the screen behind me and thinking, well, how do you reconcile that with fill the whole earth? Aren't these people doing what's wrong? But whether we're looking at Genesis 10, whether we're looking at the rest of the Old Testament, or whether we're looking at the world around us today, fill the whole earth doesn't mean only be in the country or only build cities. It's both and. The problem is not the city. The problem is our arrogance and how we act as though we don't need God. We move away east and say, God, we don't need you. Thank you very much. We'll create our own gods. We'll find our own salvation and we'll save ourselves. Did you catch that? We'll create our own salvation. We'll create our own gods. We'll get to them by ourselves. We don't need God. Now, if you grew up in the church like I did and you hear stories about the Tower of Babel, you might be thinking a little bit, the leaning Tower of Pisa. But that's not the case. Uh, the Tower of Babel was almost certainly a ziggurat, which is basically a pyramid, but with steps up the side to get to the very top. Now, this is fascinating. The ziggurat in Babylon was called Etimenaki, which means the temple which links heaven and earth. And I'm studying this passage and I'm thinking, how arrogant are these people? We don't need God. We're gonna build our own temple to God. We don't need God to give us natural resources. We're gonna take what's in front of us and we're gonna build our own bricks. We're gonna build our own city. We're gonna build our own way to God because we don't need him. Then I'm thinking, oh, but the Bible's supposed to be a mirror. And I'm thinking, how arrogant am I? Because I know that as Christians that we believe the only way to God is through belief in Jesus. But then I go, man, do I like pleasing people. 
And man, do I know how hard it is when people don't like me. And man, do I know that this past week I had lots of difficult conversations and I don't know what it felt like afterwards. And I don't know if those people like me or not anymore. And maybe if I'm just a little bit nicer, or maybe if I do what the people want me to do instead of what God or the board is asking me to do, then maybe they'll like me a bit more. John Calvin has this great line. The human heart is an idol factory. And we just create pumping out more and more idols. We give all our attention to work because we think then my coworkers will respect me. Then I'll be able to buy really nice things and maybe I'll have that cabin on the lake or a, or a boat that I can impress my friends with. Or then maybe my father-in-law will finally impress me or, or the people I hang out with that and go golfing with, they'll really enjoy what I can do. And the problem with these idols is that we take good things and we make them God things. And we say, you know what, I love my family so much that everything I'm going to do is to make my wife happy so that my life will be happy. And I want to make sure that my kids are never bored, and so I'm going to give all of my attention to them. And I'm not going to do other things because my family needs me right now, and that's where I put all my time and attention. Or sex is a good thing. When it's in the confines of a heterosexual, loving marriage relationship. But not when I find it on my computer screen. Not when I go and do a whole bunch of one-night stands. Or sports and entertainment is great, but not if every waking moment of my free time is spent working on my fantasy football team or watching my favorite club play their sport. Even if you're sitting right here and now and you're thinking, Dave, I don't believe any of that. I don't worship anything. I think people should have the freedom to choose what makes them happy. But that's the problem. The pursuit of freedom, the pursuit of happiness then becomes your God. And everything you're doing is trying to please that idol that you've created. And God is saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. Stop your arrogance and come to me. Depend upon me because I am the one that will fulfill your deepest needs. I am the one who will never leave you, who will never disappoint you. Come and depend on God. And that's where we turn our attention to next. The dependability of God. Picking up in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Do you catch the irony there? In the arrogance of humanity, they're saying, let us build a tower that will reach into the heavens. And God is looking down and going, huh, that's pretty cute. Let's go down and see what's taking place. And God goes down and he realizes that they are creating a united front, the same language, all working together to create this impressive feat. And sometimes we, we read this word unity, we think about this word unity, and we go, unity is great, except when it's not. Unified criminals are a crime syndicate. Unified Germany 80 years ago, following a man with a really bad mustache, created problems for the world. A people who look the same, dress the same, think the same, talk the same. 
and aren't depending on God, they're following their own arrogant ambition. I wrote this in my notes this past week. As a city, Babylon symbolizes the arrogant ambition of humanity to dethrone God and make the earth its own. The building of the city isn't the problem. Humanity's arrogance to remove God is the problem. And see, God could have just knocked down this tower. He could have blown it over. He could have flicked it with his finger. He could have done whatever he wanted. But God, in his infinite wisdom, realized that's not going to help. That's not going to solve the problem. It's only going to delay the inevitable. Humanity will start over and probably come up with a better plan. And so he confuses all of their languages. Imagine what that must have been like. And you wake up the next morning and you go to work to build this tower and you start talking to somebody and they look back at you and they start talking and all you hear is gibberish. And you think to yourself, well, they must just be playing some sort of practical joke on me. So you go and talk to some other people and all they're speaking is gibberish. And you're thinking, what is wrong? Why can't I understand anybody? And so you go back to your tent and you go talk to your family. Oh, I can understand what they're saying. And you talk to your little clan and you can understand everything they're saying, but they're having the same problem you are, that if they're from a different family unit, they can't understand what other people are saying at all. And they can't understand what you're saying at all. So these people abandon this tower because they realize one clan alone can't complete such an ambitious project. So what do you do when your idols disappoint you? What do you do when family is the biggest and most important thing in your life? And you're thinking, when am I going to meet that special someone? How come my partner and I can't have kids? How come our kids aren't listening to us whatsoever? How come my grown-up kids don't talk to me? What do you do when you get your dream job only to find out you have a nightmare boss? What do you do when you're unemployed or underemployed and you're thinking, when is somebody going to recognize me? When is my boss going to see all the hard work I do and I get the promotion I deserve? When am I finally going to be able to afford that bigger car, that nicer house, or that fancier vacation? What are the idols that you have that when they are ripped away, you feel lost? My TV isn't working anymore. Nobody likes me. I can't find friends. Church is supposed to be a warm place, but why does it not feel that way at this particular church that I'm attending? And we get these things that happen. And we start to realize that our idols are going to disappoint us. And God says, will you depend on me? Will you come to me recognizing that I never change? Do you realize that I am with you always through the good times and the bad? I love what Pastor Kelsey said earlier. When we're sad, when we're happy, when things don't go right, shine Jesus' light. If you're on the prayer team right now, I'd like to invite you to come forward. You see, there's something really special here. And there's a symmetry between the Tower of Babel and what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks in the flood narrative. And we were told that at the center of that flood narrative is this beautiful story of what God has done. And if you have Genesis chapter 11 in front of you right now, you'll realize there's also a symmetry taking place. The first four verses set the scene up. The last four verses, what God does. And right in the middle, and the Lord came down. 2,000 years ago, it happened again. 
2,000 years ago, God said to his one and only son, Jesus, I want to send you on a rescue mission. Jesus, the son of God, fully God himself said, Father, what do you need me to do? And he said, I need you to go to humanity. And I need you to show them what humanity looks like. I need you to be perfect. I need you to be holy. I need you to show them what it means to be God. And Jesus shows up. And he dies in a city. 40 days later, do you know what happens? There's this huge Jewish festival. And at that Jewish festival, a bunch of people who are following Jesus, about 120 in number, are outside of this Jewish temple uh, that's taking place. And the Holy Spirit of God comes upon them. Thousands of years earlier, something happened at Babel, where everybody was speaking the same language and they got dispersed. And God says, watch my spirit, watch my power. The whole nations are coming to Jerusalem and you're going to speak the same language that they speak so that they might hear the good news of Jesus. And the people come flowing out of the temple and these 120 Christ followers start speaking in their languages, telling them the good news of Jesus. And the most outspoken apostle, a man by the name of Peter, stands up and he says, brothers, do you understand what God has done? He has sent his one and only son to die for the sins, not just of the Jews, but for the people in the whole world. Come, believe in him. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray and Pastor Joel is gonna give us some direction as to how to get the food and the bouncy castles and everything that's gonna happen. But this past week, we had 200 kids. 38 of them came forward and said, we want prayer. 30 of them decided to follow Jesus, eight of them just to follow Jesus more effectively. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you want that too. And maybe you wanna come and talk to one of our prayer partners, and maybe it's for healing, maybe it's for discernment, maybe it's for comfort, and maybe you're saying, I need to depend on God more effectively myself. Our prayer partners would love to pray for you. Something happens. We're gonna have to wait about nine or 10 months to see it. But there's one man who says, I'm going to depend on God wholeheartedly. And next summer, we're gonna look at the story of Abraham. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Genesis 1 to 11, the beginning. Thank you for the joy that we have to learn about this and to see this and to see what you are doing in the creation of the world and setting everything up. And God, may we be a people that come to you to depend on you, to see you, to be changed by you. God, we pray that you would forgive us for our own arrogance and when we create our own idols, whatever those idols might be. God, we ask that by your power, you would work within us so that we might depend fully on you to keep you at the center and to be people who shine Jesus' light. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen.